0: Yes, you're going to
1: have people turn their backs, but it's time for us to keep, just keep talking that real, bro. Do what you do. I know what you do. So keep doing that. Talk the real. The HBI lads will see you now. See you now. See you now. I don't want to cause no problems. Mm-hmm. I just want to live my life, but I keep on hearing about nonsense. Welcome back to the HBI podcast. You got Ben here doing the intro. Nathan is out on daddy duties. He's about to have a new beautiful baby, baby boy. Uh, we've got Dan here as well, so it's just us two today. We're going to talk all things to do with some, some, gym, some gym stuff, some exercise stuff, particularly there's a, a burning topic that seems to keep bugging and, and haunting Dan, so we want to put this frequently asked question to bed, so I'll let Dan sort of take over from here. Awesome. It's
0: just not the same without Nathan doing that intro, eh?
1: It's not. Um, <laughs>
0: Underwhelming. Um, yeah, well, have the we'll we'll practice. <laughs> I'll try next week. Yeah, so the the question we all keep getting asked or it keeps seeming to come up, I feel like it was a year ago we did a podcast on this and it was about the uh, toe elevated remaining deadlift and um, whether or not the toe elevation makes a difference from a musculoskeletal perspective on muscular recruitment and tension in the hamstrings directly. Have you uh, seen much of this lately? I,
1: I see it on your stories. And essentially, like, Uh, like there's a lot of i guess controversy and like we're not here to to sort of shun people and make them feel stupid about i guess their particular sort of exercise choice when they're programming things but i think having a, a basic or even at least fundamental understanding of anatomy mechanics uh the musculoskeletal sort of application and and i guess you know, designing programs and whatnot and, and why you do things. I think if you understand the reasoning for building programs and have a, obviously um, some relevance to anatomy and mechanics. And obviously you can pick and choose whatever program you want and whatever exercise that you want. But when there is a a lack of knowledge and a an exercise placed in a program that maybe the reasoning for it doesn't make sense, I think that's sort of... Where you can always fall back on your anatomical and biomechanics knowledge, and it will, oh, you know, and and a, uh, the anatomical and pathology sort of knowledge that, that will always be really good sort of um, foundations for for why you choose what programs and why you choose what exercises and why you sort of play with the variables and what you do. Yeah, hundred percent. I
0: think it's uh you know, there's no good or bad. This is you know, more your clinical reasoning behind why you choose something. So um i think worst case scenario at the end of the day it's like you're not going to hurt someone by elevating their toes when they do an rdl you might irritate or piss off someone if they've got some sciatic based or some neural based symptoms but worst case scenario it's like we're not we're not talking about something that's going to be you know super damaging or super dangerous It's more just the fact of the, all the, the dogma on social media about people trying to make things black and white and then you know like we like we said we're not here to uh shoot on anyone or ran on anyone's praise it's more just to start to promote more clinical thinking and get people to think about more the why and how of you know, why you're choosing a certain exercise and understanding the how to like reverse engineer what adaptation you're trying to achieve or what outcome you're trying to achieve and then figure out from that like which exercise is going to be the the best option that has the highest amount of benefit the lowest amount of risk and the most amount of efficiency to move someone from point A to point B mm-hmm. so it's not to say something's bad or good or bad it's just to say what is more or less efficient or more or less effective in that scenario so I think with the uh, the tele- elevation on the RDL um, you know if we break it down initially from uh, anatomy or neuroanatomy perspective it's like well the hamstrings we know are a biarticular muscle they're going to originate from the ischial tuberosity on the pelvis they're going to insert onto the tibia and the fibula so we know they cross the hip joint they cross the knee joint they don't directly cross the ankle joint so the first argument is for, you know are you going to you know, influence tension from a muscular perspective, keyword there, muscular, from changing the toe position at the talocrural joint? And the answer would be no. What you will change indirectly would be two things. Number one, you know, neural tension. So, we know, we have the sciatic nerve, which you know, is going to exit through lumbar spine, go through uh, the greater foramen, down the back of the hamstrings, behind the knee, bifurcate, go down the um, back of the calf and then under the foot. So it's like if we were to extend our knee, know dorsiflex our toe or our foot uh we're going to feel that increase in neural tension it's like one of those tests we use in the clinic as well as you know we can get someone to tuck their chin to their chest round their lumbar spine flex their hip extend their knee and dorsiflex their foot and what you're going to feel if you're doing that at home is going to feel an increase in neural tension along the back of your thigh so all we're really doing is replicating like a neural tension test where we do that in the gym so that's the first thing you're going to feel. It could be an argument for like you're, you're indirectly going to influence tension on the hamstrings from a fascial perspective because we obviously know everything's connected. So you know if we look at the back half of the body, it's like we have something called a deep longitudinal sling, which is like your perineals, um, was like your perineals longest. And then we've got the hamstrings, the biceps femoris goes into the sacrotubius ligament then goes into the lumbar fascia and the spine. So it's like, Technically, we could say there's an increase in some fascial tension, but again, it's like fascial tension and neural tension is very different to direct muscular tension in a hypertrophy argument, which. And,
1: sorry to cut you off there, but also it's quite uh, generic. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel that specifically isolated to the hamstring either.
0: Yeah, it's going to be the whole, that whole, like that whole sling, that whole chain is going to have an increase in tension. It's like, uh, you know, when we think about a it, nerve, it's like obviously you've got the, the myelin sheath and you've got the nerves, like we're basically. We're we're, we're glossing or flossing that nerve within its sheath. So it's like we're basically just going to feel that neural tension the whole way through. It's not going to be specifically at one muscle. It's going to be that whole system is now either increasing or decreasing its tension. So, yeah, I don't think it's a bad exercise. I just think when it's like, all right, if we reverse engineer it and just like remove all emotion and just go, is the goal of that adjustment to the remaining deadlift for a hypertrophic reason? And if it's like, if the goal is hypertrophy and you're doing it for the reason of hypertrophy, is that necessarily like adding up in terms of what you've chosen and what your outcome is? And I would argue, probably not, in the context of like, am I directly increasing tension on the hamstrings? However, the second argument could be well, and this is where it's, there's no black and white. It's like if you had a client who potentially uh, you find is you know constantly dropping themselves into anterior pelvic tilt, constantly shifting the center of mass forward, like they're falling forward through space. And there's someone who, when they do an RDL, they keep going into this like excessive anterior tilt, lumbar extension, then maybe, you know, doing that toe elevation, if you're using that for the rationale of understanding coupled movement and going, well, if I was to create relative dorsiflexion of the ankle, that's also going to create relative posterior pelvic tilt, shift the center of mass backwards, which is then going to create more of a balanced, you know, human, which would then allow us to load more effectively in that movement. So it's like, if it was... For that reason, it's like, cool, I'm using that method as a tool in the toolbox to try and create a better position because the position dictates outcome. If you're in a better position where we can stack our ribs over our pelvis and be in a more stable position to produce force, therefore we can produce more force, therefore we can create more tension, therefore you know, we should get stronger and build muscle. Blah, blah, blah. So there is like indirect benefits of it, but I, mean, I think it's like, unless you're thinking that way. Um, which in most cases and the arguments I hear on social media is it's not I'm thinking it exactly what I just said. It's I'm gonna elevate the toes because that's gonna increase sensation and I feel my hamstrings, so therefore it's more effective.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Very good points. I was thinking just before you got stuck into it, I think you can draw a parallel to investing and uh when you're looking, especially like for us with crypto or stocks or whatever you want to. So you're always looking for the ROI, the return on investment and That's why each so intelligent intelligent programming done you know tailored to the individual um not only for exercise choice but you know it's intensity it's duration um it's looking at all the training principles as well but i think it's like well where are you going to get your most bang for your buck especially if let's let's say the person is um time poor whatever it may be so you're going to choose the most effective exercises that are most sort of relevant to that person their mechanics, their injury history, um, any sort of pathology that's going on, uh, their lifestyle, et cetera. So I think that if we can draw a parallel between you know how you would invest your money and sort of almost how you should choose your exercises because each exercise is a stimulus on the body. As you mentioned, the goal is to get maximum strength or hypertrophy gains or whatever, proprioceptive, whatever you're training for, but keeping the injury risk as low as possible. So that's the first point on that but what you said before and the fact you can just recite you know fascial slings and different anatomical sort of pathways of the nerve etc etc the fact as you said that that is your reasoning for, for programming is obviously making it quite specific to the anatomy and go well fundamentally and anatomically this is what this position does and this is you know a bit of dorsiflexion might push you into a bit more knee flexion which will also then push you into more posterior pelvic tilt and that might take you out of a bit more lumbar flexion or extension whatever it may be so i think if you always draw on the fundamentals Mm -hmm. of the mechanics of the body that that can obviously um you know it's a very sound way of programming i think um the other thing i was going to touch on was it's Probably more detrimental as well because if you've got tension on a nerve, Mm. which comes across as almost like a distraction or compressive loading on the nerve, you might actually reduce like the efficiency and the signaling of the nerve. So if anything, you'd actually probably get, I think, less of an input, I'd say, to the motor units and the muscle, which would, end of the day, decrease your active stabilization. So it might actually increase your injury risk <laughs> yeah by There's doing a, something like that depends on the degree of neural it like because eh? it's like well mechanically you know from a
0: center of mass perspective it's like you're putting someone in a better position which means then they should be well what well, should be like if you put someone in a more balanced position to produce force they can produce more force but now you're producing more force on a system that's you know essentially yeah you got less dynamic stabilization because your nervous system is in a, uh, a state of threat and danger so it's down regulating everything. So. Yeah, I think that comes back to the adaptation because, like, as you were talking, I just thought, well, why are you actually using the exercise? And it's like, I quite like using things like toe elevations. And, um, we'll come back to this in a second, but it's like, we the thing I find fascinating is everyone questions the toe elevation on RDL, but no one questions the heel elevation on a squat. And it's like the inverse, they're <laughs> like, no one blinks twice when you say, you know, heel elevated squats, fry your quads, and then toe elevation on a the RDL. You know, it's like the same sort of. Uh, obviously from a neuroanatomy perspective so slightly different nerves and whatnot but like it's the same principle
1: it's easy to understand though i think because like yeah. heel elevated squats for example people will go oh stiff ankle immobile hips get greater depth it's giving a better position lumbar spine lumbo-pelvic positioning so i think that concept is very much easier to wrap your head around than trying to work out fucking all right what's neural tension what's muscular tension yeah. dan's now talking about a basis basis support, center of mass, and now we're using it as a proprioceptive educational tool rather than a muscle. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think it's a, a lot harder to understand.
0: But I think it's also cool because it highlights the fact of like, well, if you're not thinking about those things when you do a heel elevation, maybe you're just giving a heel elevation because again it's like oh that's just the thing to do and that's just like the default of oh someone's got bad ankle mobility or shit squat depth. And it's like bang, here's the heel elevator squat versus actually again like breaking it down and going like you don't have to have you don't have to be super around something like, like you don't have to be super scientific with it, but it's like having a basis of understanding anatomy and biomechanics. So then you can understand the why and the how of the exercise and manipulate it appropriately. That's going to give you the confidence and confidence that they're like, all right, I'm choosing this for this reason versus I'm just like throwing a Hail Mary and thinking, all right, let's just hope that the heel elevation fixes this person's squat. Because if it does help their squat, which it does nine times out of 10, mm. if you can't tell me why it helped their squat, then you're not in any better you're not in a better position than you were previously because like it worked but then I think it's equally as important to know when something works as as important it is to know when something doesn't work because if you don't know why it's working it's like how do you replicate that
1: yeah I think yeah for planning going forward and having consistently good outcomes if you don't understand the variable you're playing with and why it helps and why is this solution better than another one or why does this work on this person but not someone else, it, as you said, it, it doesn't require a great depth of knowledge. Like, because the a great thing about training is that you can put theory into practice very quickly. Yeah. And, like, between you and your right and left leg and right and left arm, and then maybe a couple of a handful of clients, you're going to get a huge, like, variance in the person's, like, uh, anatomics. And, sorry, not exactly the anatomics and the way they're built, but more, I guess, the Uh, arthrokinematics and the way that their joints move is going to be very different because everyone leads a very different lifestyle has a very different sort of history when it comes to physical activity in a sport so you might have like today I saw the most side side sidebarring here but i had very bizarre um presentation this guy i think he has some posterior lateral some meniscus stuff going on but it's it's not bad enough to come up come up on mri but the guy's mechanics are all just messed up like he's got slightly dysplastic hips and antiverted hips he's got the the worst sort of tibial uh femoral tibial torsion i've seen so if i can bring his patellas like facing um directly upwards or perpendicular to the bed then he's got this such internal rotation at the at the tibias so mechanically he's got like this big sort of twist and torsion through his leg but it it results with like a mild meniscus sort of irritation but and he's got the flattest feet you've ever seen and as i said one hips femoral acetabular impingement the other one's like you know relatively normal maybe in the background of antiverted hips i'm like wow let me take some photos because this presentation i've never ever seen before and this combination of like uh Joint sort of kinematics that I've never seen. So everyone has a, obviously a slightly different presentation. I know I'm sidebarring here, so that's why, as Dan said, fundamentally it's important to know, um, a have a, some knowledge, and b also know what's normal. Mm-hmm. I think, and from when you know what's normal, you can actually work out what's abnormal. Yeah. Um, but we keep touching on the same point that, like, in all your programs you build, all the programs I build, each exercise is very it's hand selected and yeah. picked for that person because it's like well all right you know and that's why we the great thing about what we do is we couple yeah we can do some treatment we can send off to this health professional we can go get these scans done etc 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 cetera. so for pts and coaches out there strength and conditioning coaches eps and whatnot if you can really utilize other health professionals in your network it just sort of adds more information to the to the person and then that should actually help even better not only manage them from a Program perspective but also from a like a systemic sort of health and well-being lifestyle perspective yeah 100%. i think um one, one
0: thing i just wanted to touch on yeah was more like well more like this is the, the reasoning always kind of back to the reasoning of like why you're actually describing it because like even when we talk about the the elevation on the sorry the elevation on the rdl like we just use logic and ration for a minute like You were saying before about, you know, if someone is in a, if someone's not able to, you know, be in a stable position, it could actually be detrimental, which is true. It's like, well, my argument would be if someone doesn't have sufficient motor control or sagittal awareness to control their body in space, anterior, posterior, then they don't really have any business doing heavy loading. So it's like, obviously, stability, precursor strength. If you don't have adequate control and you can't own a range of motion, then like we don't load it with a large amount of weight. So if you were trying to teach someone body awareness, uh, or like using that exercise as a corrective exercise to like try and create proper alignment and proper proper positional awareness. I think the elevated RDL can be great because like majority of people do tend to have that like anterior tilt, rib flare, except falling forwards, uh, falling forwards their centre of mass. So it's like using that exercise as a corrective is a great tool to then try and get that person to go the opposite direction. In saying that, it's like all right. Well, if we again just ma- match up things, it's like what is the outcome of the exercise? I'm using this exercise as a corrective. Therefore, the load should be relatively light because the purpose of the exercise is just to try and create a better position for better awareness. Then once it's like you've graduated from awareness school and motor control and you actually know how to hinge properly, it's like, well, now you we can take that heel elevation away and it's like now you should just be able to do a remaining deadlift with your feet flat on the ground and have enough body awareness, strength, stability to go through a full body hinge. At that point, it's like now you've got the requisite movement competency. It's like now we can actually start to load it with meaning and now the adaptation of that should be more you know, tissue-focused and strength-focused. Like now we can actually build muscle-build strength. When we're using the corrective exercise, like if you're trying to use a corrective exercise technique to build muscle-build strength, it's like you're kind of trying to – like something's in the wrong spot. Like either the toe elevation shouldn't be there or the weight shouldn't be there. It's like one or the other. So I think both, both of those can be useful, and it's the same um, principle of a heel elevated squat. Like a heel elevated squat might be useful to start with, try and teach someone awareness and more upright to also more dorsiflexion, maintain center of mass, but it's like eventually you're gonna take the heel elevation away so they can actually load that with some meaning and start to you know build some strength and muscle in that position.
1: Yeah, I think that's important uh, highlighting the A, the purpose, but B also like st- stages of learning. I'd say it is also what you said, you know, like if someone like we think about um, stages of learning for- you know, mentally, but it's also for a physical skill as well. And people like I program, for example, in three month blocks. And if they're like quite new, they don't have really a, a much of a training age or expertise or sort of um, familiarity familiarity with exercise and, and resistance training, then I'm like, I'll have a loading phase, which will be even less stimulus. Which is like because at the end of the day, it's all skill acquisition. So,
0: yes yeah, so and you treat
1: yeah if you treat um. Like lifting, like you know, learning a skill, like kicking a footy, for example. Like, if you look at it at that lens, it's like, well, um, it should hopefully remove, you know, maybe some of the the ego or the the self consciousness away from it and go, well, look, it's a skill. It takes time to learn a skill. Obviously, bodybuilders have mastered the skill, you know. And as I said before, everyone sort of will do things differently based on their anatomics and arthrokinematics and whatever and the way they're built. But that's why I get people doing things for like potentially several phases within a three-month block. But so it's like, man, you've done like by the time you finish that block, you've done thousands and thousands of reps of that one exercise. So your like motor neuro sort of uh, patterning and your coordination and your skill acquisition and your technical execution on that movement should be fantastic. And as and as you know, if you can master a movement, then you should. You know be able to you know subconsciously consciously activate more muscle fibers and get greater strength gains and greater hypertrophy gains and you know, get more mechanical stimulus and you should you know make great changes so on that topic i think it's again another side note but you know you should be running these exercises for a long period of time before you master them so i think if we relate it back to the stages of learning like as dan said you know you don't have any business doing these things it's like well you you know your business doing it but like is your business chance of injury (laughs) yeah is your chance of injury like risk to reward like how high is your risk right now and how how great is the rewards i just mentioned that to most clients on a daily basis is like risk to reward is it worth it is it not should you run this program for another two weeks and then we graduate you out of this phase and then we get heavier Mm -hmm. and then you know by that stage, your your risk has lowered, your reward has heightened. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to people if you explain yeah. risk to reward ratios and pros and cons of things, just to they make things really really digestible. Yeah, I think it's
0: just also just yeah, just at the end of the day, it's like marrying up desired outcome adaptation with intervention and how like. I think that's obviously just yeah, the, the better you get at coaching, the more experience you get, the better you get at narrowing the goalpost between I've got fifty options to achieve the outcome. What's the top three and how do I make how do I be as specific as possible with reverse engineering that process? Like I don't think it's a dangerous exercise. I don't is any cons of it. I just think it's like, yeah, if if you're using that toe elevation for that specific purpose, it's not like, it's not that like you're gonna hurt someone, it's just like you're just leaving so many gains on the table because you're using the back of a screwdriver to try and knock in a hammer it's like just it can work but it's not that effective like use a hammer for an ale use a screwdriver for a screw
1: mm-hmm. yeah i think really good points i think we should topically talk about a few more like i think people might be interested to hear why you would elevate the heel for example not only from a practitioner's perspective but from a client and gen pop perspective so i think We'll wrap it up there i think there's a lot of hopefully a lot of good stuff in there we always sort of float our own boats we're saying yeah there's lots of good shit in there Come like, uh, back for heel
0: elevated squats and uh a few other ones so we might have to do like yeah. a series of all the funny exercises
1: yeah and there's all the the little variations you can make for each thing all right guys well hope you enjoyed it uh give us a review five-star review we're gonna get on the um on the train again start start uploading some things we had some technical difficulties on our end that we had a change of uh, a few people in the back back end which means that we've uploaded things a little bit slower but um give us a five-star review where you can we're aiming to get the instagram and social media pumping a bit more uh it'll just be dan and i for a little while and yeah thank you for listening
0: see you guys